I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is show number 380, and we are finishing, we are finally wrapping up our speech intelligibility uh, series this summer that we've done with working with how to help toddlers achieve better or more intelligible speech. So today we are finally at our last pattern and just for a click, a click, a quick review, let's look at the previous five patterns. Before we address today's pattern too, I want to be sure that you realize that there are things that come first because sometimes speech pathologists start here at this level with the pattern that we're going to be talking about today. But I want you to realize all the other focuses that you should have first. And even as a parent, even if you are just watching this for your own information and thinking, you know, how can I help my child at home? What are some things that I can do to help it be easier to understand my child? Don't start here with today's pattern. These other five patterns in the previous three shows come first. And so they were syllableness or getting the right number of syllables in the word. Then correct vowels, the A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y part. That was the second pattern, pattern, correct vowels. Then initial consonants or the first sound in the word when it's a consonant sound then variety of syllable shapes that we talked about in last show do they have words that have more than one syllable do they have words that start with vowels do they have words that uh, end with vowels do they have words that have different again consonants or different places the fifth pattern was switch vowels from syllable to syllable so can they say words like mommy or open or cheese ball when the words contain different vowels. And then lastly, after children have uh, achieved some degree of fairly consistent production of those earlier five patterns, then and only then will we get to final consonants. And the reason that I've taken, gosh, almost three minutes to talk to you about this is because this is such a common error in uh, toddler addressing toddler intelligibility or even early preschool intelligibility. We hear a, t- a child talk and then we just, as speech language pathologists, we can, we can hardly keep ourselves from zoning in on that final consonant that a child is missing. And again, this is a mistake when we start there when we think about toddler intelligibility. Now, it is a prevalent mistake and it is something that I can totally see why therapists do it or when a child's speech is difficult to understand, they just think, oh gosh, he's not putting any of the ending sounds on. And again, that may be a chief contributor to a child's overall intelligibility problem. However, it's not the first thing we address. And a lot of times when I'm talking with a therapist or listening to what a therapist is telling me is the problem and she tells me that she started working on final consonants and I go back and ask these questions, well, have you thought about his vowels? And she says, not really. And I say, well, how is he doing with initial consonants? And she says, well, I think he might be missing some of those. See, that's the whole point. Everything we do in speech language development with children happens on a continuum. And when we work on things in the wrong order, when we as adults get the sequence wrong, 
progress is really slow. Sometimes it just it grinds to a screeching halt because we are not focused on the right things. So I, again, I've I now taken four and a half minutes <laughs> to make sure that you understand that final constants really are the last big pattern that we look at when we're addressing speech intelligibility. So now that I've, I've beaten that in your heads, let's move forward and talk about how we work on final consonants. And again, for, if you're a parent, a final consonant, remember back to our previous discussion on previous shows. And if you're just joining me for this show and you haven't listened to the previous shows in this series, please go back and listen to those. It actually starts with number 373 because you need background for this. Some kids aren't even developmentally ready to work on articulation until they are well past that third birthday. And so go back and listen to those previous shows too. But just for review, final consonants are you know the remaining letters of the alphabet that are not vowels and when they are in the final or the last position in the word. So when should kids work on this pattern? Well, it's when they don't include that ending consonant sound in words. And we don't really work on this with toddlers when they already have three or four other or three or four different consonant sounds that they do use. So if you're listening to a kid who's 30 months old, 36 months old, and he has a few little ending consonant sounds in a few words, honestly, for me, Laramize in my practice, I would not worry about that because I would think that developmentally that is emerging, that is coming along. And we can do some facilitative things like we talked about from the very beginning where we really just model and where we call attention to it and where we, again, promote that pattern. We give a lot of frequent exposure, meaning that we play with lots of things, that lots of toys or materials that we have purposefully chosen those target words. And we, we do that and we have then work on that word, but we're not really, you know, hitting that final consonant pattern as our primary focus for therapy. We're just including it as an as part of our overall treatment plan. And it's again one of the things that we facilitate, that we we do everything we can to to set the stage and then we know that maturation will kick in or we hope <laughs> that maturation will kick in and that the, those final constants will emerge in more words and that's how it should work but for some kids we really do have to focus on this and again this is such a this is such a common error even children with typically developing speech language skills sometimes don't get those final sounds until they are closer to that third birthday. So if you specialize in early intervention and if you are working on final consonants a lot, I don't think that should be your primary focus. I think you probably have bigger fires to put out and you may not even have realized it until this show. So really, really think about that because the maturation piece is a big deal and a lot of kids, again, even those with typically developing skills, have difficulty with this. So you don't want to really focus all your therapy power on something that that really doesn't warrant that level of clinical expertise. But some kids will need it. So for those kids, let's talk about, let's talk about what you can do as a speech language pathologist or as a parent, or if you're a developmental interventionist and you think, hey, I'm going to help my speech therapist friend out here. <laughs> we're going to work on, we're going to work on some of these final sounds. All right. So Another reason that final constants are so important, though, is because it is the primary pattern 
in English. And so a, a very prominent pattern that we see when we analyze our vocabularies and when we look at a speech construction of a word is a constant vowel, constant construction. And because it is the most common pattern in English, it does mean that there's lots of opportunity for kids to get it right or get it wrong. So when a kid is struggling with final constant deletion, it is pretty noticeable, and again, I think that's why so many therapists just jump right to that pattern. But if a kid's not developmentally ready, you're not going to have very much success. So if you've been working on this a lot, and if you've stumbled upon this show to think, oh, she has a magic wand, she's about to tell me this trick that I don't know, that's probably not the case. I, I, I really want to talk about how to, again, set the stage so that this comes in more naturally and so that you are facilitating this uh, really important pattern in toddlers. All right, so examples of final consonants would be the T in hat or the P in pop or the N in moon. So if you are a, a therapist, be sure that you are explaining it that clearly to parents so that they can understand what pattern you are targeting. And then by age three, the milestone is a child should use at least a few final consonant sounds. Children, toddlers with typically developing speech sound systems produce at least three different final consonants around that 24-month level. And most final sounds, uh, by the time they're 36 months, from this list. And it's the same list of early developing consonants that we have been talking about through this entire series. So our bilabial sounds are our sounds made here with our lips. So P, B, and M. And then the sounds made in the middle of our mouths, our alveolar sounds, N, T, and D. And then our pharyngeal consonants, K and G. So those those sounds made back in our pharynx or our throats, for those of you who aren't therapists. And then also, let me talk about two other final sounds that emerge here, even in this earliest level, an NG or an ing, which again, you do not find this sound. It, for a parent, you don't find it in any other position except the ending sound. And think about it in words like walking, talking, running, it carries important meaning for us in verbs because it changes the verb tense or the, the action word. It, makes, it starts to make a child sound like he's using correct grammar. So really, really important marker for uh, syntax or again that grammatical development. So it's this speech sound also carries a big language component. So that's another reason that we as people who just, who really think about themselves as I always say, language, language, language therapist, these speech sounds really do matter when it gets to this point because this is how children mark that they are acquiring these higher level language milestones. So an important marker there with NG and then S, a final S. Now we have final S's in words like bus and other common words where S is the final sound, but I don't want you to think about it like that. Again, from a language perspective, S is how children also denote plurals. So more than one. So cups, uh, boots, and S right there on the end. Cats on the end of that word helps helps show that meaning there's more than one. And so again, that's an important language marker. Uh, and it also denotes possession. And so that's, you would think about that as the plural S. Now, a lot of times that will 
even though we're talking about this final S here, sometimes it sounds like a Z when you are using it at the end of a word that has a voiced consonant. For those of you who are parents and are not speech language pathologists, that's too technical and I don't want you to worry about that. But for those of you who are therapists and you know, you're sitting there with your little <laughs> phonological brain thinking about all this, you know, something like moms, that final S sounds like a Z there. And again, that is a harder consonant sound just to produce developmentally. We know that that doesn't come in until children really are, uh, you know, four and five, maybe even later than that. Uh, for uh, kids who've had previous speech delays or kids who have been late talkers that their whole little phonological system is not maturing as quickly as we would like. So sometimes there, there will be words that are even later or, or even patterns or language issues that are later to uh, emerge because of the, um, again, they're just not able to produce that sound yet. And so sometimes you may hear an S that kind of sounds weird on the end of a word, but they're just really trying to mark that plural there or mark that possessive. And the uh, context, the phonetic context there might, they need a more a Z sound than an S. All right, so that's that's the real technical kind of terminology right there. Okay, intelligibility will improve greatly when a child starts to use some final consonant sounds in words. And remember, we've talked about that there are two major kinds of errors with um, any kind of deletion or or any. Well, let me. I, I'm over talking here. There are two major kinds of errors <laughs> when we're looking at consonants here. We can have omissions or deletions where kids are completely leaving it off or we can have substitutions where a child is just using a different consonant sound for the correct consonant sound. So for example, in a word like, uh, if a child is trying to use the word duck and he just says duh, that's a final consonant omission or deletion. But if he says dut for duck, that's a substitution because he's using a T sound there instead of the k, the final k. And so there is another type of error that's specifically noted in children with dysarthria or a muscle tone difference. And if I, I hope we can get to this today where we review the um, four or five diagnoses that we're really going to talk about that, that this is this is the label that kids end up with when their unintelligible speech issues don't really resolve or when it's really, really significant. But kids with dysarthria will really distort consonants and vowels. And th that just means that their speech sounds really, really imprecise or sluggish or a little slushy is what moms will say. And you know that kids have dysarthria too because there are obvious muscle tone differences. And that can be high tone or low tone. We, we see this in children who have cerebral palsy or another kind of, uh, now they don't even really call it cerebral palsy. They, they'll give parents a diagnosis like hypotonia or hypertonia. And hypo, again, always means less or without. And so uh, without, without tone. So those are kids who have weakened muscle tone. And then hypertonia, kids who have, uh, again, there's increased muscle tone. So they're more rigid or, or um, again, higher muscle tone. So those are ways to kind of think about that. And sometimes I really do include these explanations, not for therapists in these shows who are getting continuing education credit, but remember that we have people all over the world that watch uh, and listen to the podcast that are parents and who don't have access to these kinds of explanations. And they're working with therapists on really limited, have really, really limited access. And so that's another reason I try to kind of over explain some of these terms and also for you as therapists 
this is how you say it to parents. And so I don't want you to ever think that this isn't um, as, uh, oh gosh, as a professional, you know, an intermediate level or whatever course. This, this is the down and dirty stuff. This is how you need to explain it to parents. And so I hope that with my explanations, you don't only consider that it's for your benefit, but it's just to give you this general everyday language that makes it easier for you to work with parents and families and teachers because then you learn how to explain it. And you can, uh, maybe for a parent, maybe you already have a little script about this that you already say, but sometimes parents don't understand it. And so you need to keep talking about it and keep explaining it. So I hope that... um, that my wording of some of this, uh, some of these explanations will make it even easier for you to borrow, borrow liberally, feel, feel free to just adopt it as your own and talk about it as your own. All right. So let's move on and talk about what we can do to determine if a child is using final consonants. And we've talked about this with the previous five patterns. And again, this is primarily for parents and for therapists. This is what you would talk to parents about. You would say, I want you to listen this week and I want you to write down the words that he's saying exactly as he's saying them. And then you help parents really identify my goodness, he is leaving off these final consonants and words. And let me just say too, this pattern is more difficult for children to achieve in conversational speech. So when they are using longer phrases, so three and four words, or when they've gotten up to sentences, they're stringing four or five words together. A lot of times articulation really decreases at that point because the challenges to that little child's system have really increased. And so he's having to really sequence lots of sounds there. He's putting several words together and he's not only thinking about how does this, or he's not really thinking about it, but there's there's a lot for his little body to do or for his system to keep up with. And so sometimes we will hear some final sounds in single words. He'll say pop very clearly. You get that P at the end. And then he tries to say, I pop bubbles, mama. And it sounds like I pop bubbles, mama. Or, you know, I pop bubba, mama. And it kind of, you know, he, he leaves off some sounds. And that's okay, too. That's also really, really common in children who have struggled with speech sound development. So don't I don't get too freaked out about that. And I, when I work on final consonant sounds, you know, of course we're going to do it at the single word level. And we want to make sure children master it then. But there will be some children who will need more than this. Because, again, you're looking at it in terms of the entire totality of their intelligibility. So you will have to look at at patterns that are more complex than we early interventionists do, you know, pre-vocalic voicing, post-vocalic voicing, all that. And last week's show, I said I didn't really work on that, and that's the truth. I really don't. But you will need to consider that, especially if you primarily work with preschoolers. And again, there's so many preschool therapists who uh, use my my materials and who listen to the podcast because most of the children they work with or lots of them are coming in and are still at that toddler developmental level. So even though they are three and a half, they're still functioning at that 24 month or 30 month level. And so those of you who are preschool speech language pathologists, again, you are keenly aware that you will have to address some of those higher level patterns. But those of us who are just uh, baby therapists, 
<laughs> we sometimes don't even really think about that. And again, that's fine because these are the primary six patterns that we needed to address. Okay, so let me give you some initial treatment tips for final consonants. Um, you have to always get yourself a good starting point for therapy. And that really, again, makes it much more likely that you will achieve some success. So I always start with the final sounds, the nasal sounds, M, M, or N. And if you're a parent, you haven't really thought about that before. You know, put your hands up there. You can feel resonance or you can feel that your face vibrate there because of that airflow is really um, in your directed through your nasal cavity. So M or N are good to do, and I do like it because kids can see an M, mm, and they can. Sometimes I've had children feel it, so that they can get that their own feedback. And then unvoiced consonant sounds. So the unvoiced bilabial is a P, an unvoiced alveolar a T, and then an unvoiced pharyngeal a K. So those are our five primary target sounds when we are beginning to work on final consonants. So why do we do that? Why do we stick with those unvoiced consonant sounds, P, T, or K? Because when we practice a voiced final consonant, we often have children add a schwa or an uh at the end. So instead of saying dad, they say dad, duh. Instead of saying bed, they say bed, duh. Instead of saying bug, they say bug. And why do they do that? Because of us. <laughs> because we model it incorrectly. We are focused on helping them hear that last sound. So we punch that last consonant sound. And then it ends up with an unintended vowel at the end of that. So do not do that if you are working with a child. And that's a really important reminder. Therapists, you should know that, and I'm sure that you do, and you're aware of that. But talk to parents about that. When you are working on final consonant sounds and you're talking about it, and you're saying, hey, we're really gonna work on P's, T's, and K's, or the K sound. And you know, you'll talk about the um, nasals. M's a little, uh, M's easier to do because children, if you're using a word like gum, you're going to talk about just keeping your lips together. They're probably not going to do gum uh, some, some parent might do that, again, unintended. They just, they're, they're not, they just don't know that they shouldn't be doing that. So talk about that with them, about why we used unvoiced consonant sounds rather than voiced consonant sounds. And so I like to begin with those sounds, those five sounds, and really choose target words that are functional or meaningful for children there. And I, I'll tell you the truth, I really start this in exclamatory words, and I start it because it's easier for a child to practice a new pattern in a single word versus connected speech, like we've already talked about. But then I like to do it, again, in a real fun kind of way. And so I use words like yum, you know, when we're having snack time, and then uh, just uh, power words, boom, bam. And then words like beep and peep and even toot as we play with vehicles. So if we're playing with a train or a boat, you know, toot, toot, getting that T. And I like it also, toot and peep, because 
the consonant is the same at the beginning of the word and at the end of the word. And so I, I'll do a lot of um, playing with those words. And then again, words like boom, bam, beep. Those are real fun for especially little boys and toddler girls like that too. Don't leave them out of that kind of rough and tumble play. So those are our best target words. And I tell you, I do it when we're sometimes if we're just throwing pillows in a family's uh, living room there or if we're punching the pillows of mom and dad don't think that's going to lead to too much uh, unintended aggression later those kinds of things peep I do it a lot with you know peep peep or if we're playing with uh, say a little barn or any kind of toy where we're hiding it I'll say oh he's gonna look out and see you ready he's gonna peep and that's a fun little word and most kids haven't used it before and so you know, again, not entirely functional or meaningful, but it's so fun because it is, it's novel. And it's easy, sometimes it's easier to teach a new word versus an old word that they've overlearned a pattern. And we've talked about that throughout the show. Some patterns lend themselves well to coming in with, with uh, newer words. And sometimes it's easier to try to go back and clean up an old word because they practice it and there's a lot of opportunity. And some kids are just different that way. You'll just really have to experiment and say, should we try to clean up these old words that he's making errors on or should we go ahead and teach some new words? And again, if you're really trying to increase vocabulary as you were targeting or facilitating some of these new speech patterns, that may be the way to go for you. All right, so in the book, My Therapy Manual, Functional Phonology, which uh, this whole series has been pulled from, uh, all these seven or eight shows, how many ever it is now, uh, you'll find these word lists, and I've tried to include them as well in all of the PDF handouts for this course. Now, let me just say a word about that because I've gotten, I get a couple emails a day about this. The, the handouts with the word list are only available if you purchase the CE credit because that was just the, the most fair way that I could come up uh, with to do that. So if, if even if you're not a therapist or even if you live in another country and you are not interested in continuing education credits from this American speech language uh, pathologist through ASHA, you can still get the, you probably should go ahead and get the, purchase the credit just so that you can get the handouts for this show and any other show. There's always a one-page handout, and it's always um, pretty. The graphic designer does it <laughs> so that you can use this for parent education, and you can have these handouts and hang on to these and print them, you know, save them to your computers and then print them whenever you need them. So the word list, I'll review them with you here, but if you want to get a copy of that list and you think, I'm just not going to sit here and try to write all this down, you can purchase that credit and then have this list forever and ever. So the target words that I do here for M are, are um, the best words, and again, We've already talked about a couple of target words when we were looking at those exclamatory words. And if those words don't work, meaning that if a child cannot get a consistent and accurate production of that final sound, try these words because it's the same as what I said about peep and toot. The beginning consonant sound or the initial consonant is the same as the ending consonant or the final consonant, and that will make it easier for a child because he's not having to change the consonant sound. So for final M, you could do mom or ma'am, and if you live in the South, like I do, that's a big one. We want our kids to say yes ma'am and no ma'am. Um, and I don't always work on that with kids. I'm just kind of making a little joke there. but. 
uh, but but it is a great target word. And if that is important to a family, you know, you certainly uh, want to think about that. Final N words, none, noon, nine. And then none is included in every practice uh, or every set of flashcards that you could get for uh, looking at articulation or looking at final consonant sounds. Not a super practical word, unless you're Catholic, and that's an important word maybe in a school there for you. But those are target words. Nine is the word that I use most often, and I have a lot of kids who like to count and or have had over the over the years. And so nine is and nine and none are kind of my target words there. Final P, pop, peep, like we talked about. And then poop, you just cannot go wrong with potty birds <laughs> for toddlers. They're all potty training or should be getting interested in potty training anyway or toilet training. So poop is a great one there. And we talked about uh, toot for final T. I like tot, especially if a kid can use you no know, tater tot or come up with some other little word or some other way to use that word. And then final K, kick, cook, cake, and coke. And some of you are philosophically opposed to using the word Coke because you would never, ever, ever let a kid have a soft drink or a soda. I'm kind of lax on that one. But those are great target words there. Uh, and granted, these some of these words are a little bit more difficult to practice in context. You always want to try to get a meaningful, more functional word first. And then, because again, a child will have more of an opportunity to use it. So... Also in uh, functional phonology, I've given you my uh, favorite ways to use those words, but you know, they're all really, really uh, self-explanatory mom. You can call mom all day long, pop with bubbles, pop with uh, bubble wrap, because we do shipping at Teach Me To Talk every day. We have a lot of bubble wrap uh, here for, and, and kids like that. Popcorn is another fun way to use that. Those little push toys, the, the little, so irritating, but a great way to practice. The toy with the big handle with the balls, I think Fisher Price makes it, but the pop, pop, pop toy um, that you push, super, super fun way to practice that. We talked about poop, uh, we talked about um, toot, and then cook or cake. And I do those not in the kitchen, but I do that with Play-Doh. So when we're making pretend birthday cakes, and then we cook the cake. Super, super fun way to do it, and I almost always use a little toy microwave when I do that. And so I wanted to uh, give you some ideas for activities there. Um, other tips for determining some initial treatment uh targets for final consonants look for words where a kid already is pretty solid with uh, a sound in the initial position and think okay well that's a final sound that I can probably get so if he has a good initial M but you're having a hard time getting final sounds focus on final M's because he's already demonstrated that he can physically produce that sound and try to get it at the end and sometimes we do some things again with co-articulation where we pair some words where the we'll we'll use a word with an an initial M as the second word because a kid is going to get that and already include that. And so there are some great word lists in functional phonology. Again, if you want to take a look at that therapy manual to uh, make this easier for you. And one other thing I want to say about final consonants before we move on here is auditory bombardment or giving a parent a listening list or using this in therapy this is the pattern that I almost always 
use a listening list or that strategy where I'm having parents read a list to a child or I am reading a list to a child of words so that he can, <clears throat> excuse me, internalize this pattern and really, really hear that final constant pattern there. So I wanted to mention that as well. And we talked about that back in an earlier show, probably the show where we first started to talk about the overview show, the pattern list. And we talked about why listening is and really hearing that pattern, how that really helps children master it because they finally settle down enough to listen to you produce, you know, a list of 10 words or so that include that pattern. And uh, uh, again, final constants are just uh, a pattern that I would not skip this step or that I would make sure that I assign this to a parent for homework and talk to your parent about why auditory bombardment is so important for that pattern. All right, so that's it. So now that's the end. That's the end of these six. It's not the end of the show, so we haven't done an hour yet. So if you're getting this for continuing education, don't turn off the podcast yet <laughs> because we have some other things to talk about. But that's it as far as these six patterns. And remember they were, let, let's see if I can do it without looking or I better look so I don't embarrass myself. Syllableness, so getting the right number of syllables in the word. Vowels, correct vowel sounds. Initial consonants, the beginning consonant sound. Variety of syllable shapes. Switching the vowel from syllable to syllable. And then, and only then, do we target final consonants that we've uh, talked about today. All right, so I want to move on right now and really quickly uh, talk about something that's so important with speech intelligibility issues and so it's really talking about the reasons or the diagnoses now for some families and for some let's let's start with families for some families getting a specific diagnosis as to why a child isn't speaking as clearly or as or they aren't able to understand him as well as they would like for some families that they don't care they just want him better. They just want him to make progress. They don't care if what you call it. It could be apraxia. It could be dysarthria. It could be a phonological problem. It could just be a delay. They don't care. They just, you know, sometimes it's they just want to hand you the child and say, uh, fix him, please. I'll be back. You know, we don't want that either. But at the same time, it's not as important to them. But for some families... A diagnosis really, really matters. And so they are the moms who, if you're doing home visits, they meet you at the door saying, what's wrong? What, what could be the problem here? I've been Googling. And every time you hear, I've been Googling, you know, some therapists just want to say, don't, don't go on the internet and look this up. But, you know, in this day and age, we can hardly stop that. And sometimes parents, you know, will go to the worst possible scenario. You know, every child has apraxia to a parent who's Googling, you know, every child will have the, the most catastrophic thing that they can find. And here's the truth. Some kids do have apraxia. Some kids do have significant motor planning problems, significant speech intelligibility problems, but parents won't know what to call it. And so for those kids, you know, if a parent's saying, I think he has apraxia, and you say, no, this is this is called dysarthria. This is the and here's how I know. And so you'll you'll have to really talk some parents through this. And again, use your own judgment about whether you think this is something that a parent even cares about. You know, again, apraxia. We're going to talk about it in a minute. 
is such a scary diagnosis for some families because they, they read worst case scenario on the internet and they get all freaked out about it when you just want to say, okay, it, yeah, this could be apraxia, but hang on a minute. He's already talking. We're already making progress here. Let's calm down a little bit. And so, and you, you may not want to say let's calm down a little bit, but you do want to be as uh, responsive as you can. And for some parents, you really do want to calm them down. Now, for some parents who don't care about it and you, you're an early interventionist or a preschool therapist and you want to say, hey, mom, this is not going to go away tomorrow unless we really, really focus on this. But again, as a therapist, you've got to really know how to talk to parents about these diagnoses and talk about why. Because for some parents, again, unless you are giving them good information, they are going to worst case scenario or they're not paying nearly enough attention to this or don't give it nearly the level of priority and importance in their life that they should because you as a therapist aren't giving them correct or excuse me, as accurate information as you can give them. Uh, Pardon me while I take a drink. My voice is getting really raspy. So the diagnoses, excuse me, the diagnoses that we want to discuss here are speech disorder, phonological delay, dysarthria, and apraxia, or childhood apraxia of speech. There's one more really important diagnosis that we're going to discuss, and let's just kind of get this out of the way right now, though, but it's autism. And I always pause after I say that because I want you to, I want you to really, as a therapist, think about this. And as a parent to really think about this, and so many times parents of children with autism, even if they haven't been diagnosed yet, will automatically default to, it's something else is the reason that he's not talking. It's not autism. And the truth is, and it's super, super important for you to hear as a parent, And even more important for you to hear as a therapist because you have to know how to communicate this to parents. But research tells us that 33% to 50% of children with autism will remain nonverbal or minimally verbal throughout their whole lives. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? That's hard to think about. A third to a half of kids who get an autism diagnosis may not ever talk. So here's the kicker. Half, 50% to 66% do talk. And that's an even greater number. They do talk. And how do you know which kid is which? How do you know where a kid falls? Well, the more severe the the characteristics are and the more non-communicative he is, the less likely, you know, just that, maybe not necessarily even non-communicative, but my point is, as toddlers, we don't know. And so for those kids, we have to focus on communication. We have to focus on teaching them to be connected with people and to listen when other people talk to them and to learn what words mean. And then to use whatever methods that they can to begin to communicate. So it might be gestures. It might be pictures. It might be an, another AAC device, um, a speech generating device. It might be all of those things. And for a lot of those kids, those things come 
first, and we'll talk about, when we get to the end of the show, we'll talk about some indicators that let you know that you probably need to go on and look at an AAC device for any kid, autism or not, any kid that's not talking. And again, that's such an important thing. And some of you as therapists are thinking, why is she talking about that with this speech intelligibility show? You know, surely, surely someone has talked to a parent about that. Surely they're not going to be listening to this kind of show about articulation. Unfortunately, that's the truth. And so parents are thinking, too, if we just get all the right sounds in the right places, you know, that that's really the problem when it's really, really not. And so for autism, I just want to say I've seen it in my 25-year career over and over and over where a parent will default to one of these other diagnoses, and apraxia is the biggest one. They'll say he's not talking because he has apraxia. And the truth is, uh, the the last statistic I saw, and that it's in my, uh, I included it as a part of the uh, research in Is It Autism? That course on DVD. 63% of children with autism do have some degree of apraxia. So it is accurate, and it is close for some parents to really hang on to apraxia is the reason that their children aren't talking when or talking intelligibly but then when you really really look at it it's not that it's the 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 characteristics that are due to autism speech intelligibility is an afterthought at that point you know, we need to work on joint attention. We need to work on consistently responding to other people. We need to work on receptive language. So that's why I wanted to talk about this at the very beginning. If you have a kid who is echolalic or doing a lot of jargon, and again, parents are so confused, they don't understand what's going on with that, you have to talk about that that's a language problem. That's not a speech problem. And you have to really separate what's language and what's speech. And we talked about that in an earlier show. I think it was 373 or 374. So go back and listen to those explanations if you're a parent and want to hear that. Or if you're a therapist and you think, I'm not explaining that as well as I could. Let me let me hear this explanation and let me add my own information about this individual child so that I can help this family understand that. But it's a really big deal helping parents separate. Okay, that's that's a problem due to autism. That's not a problem. That's not that's not a speech problem. This is a language problem. So help parents really understand that and and differentiate that if that's a really big deal for them or if that's causing them to work on or worry about the wrong things. And again, some parents it won't be a big deal. Some parents it's not a big deal at all. That's a whole separate problem. You have to really talk them through that. But I wanted to point that out because this happens so much in my practice. And it may happen, too, because I get many, many, I I get the privilege. I'm so blessed by God to get to work with just the best parents in the world because they're the committed parents who are out there, you know, again, looking on the internet for great information and they find teach me to talk and so they email me and I, I you know a lot of times I get to meet them and work with them so I I know that my caseload is much different than many of you and it's and it looks so different now than when I first started to see kids you know 20 25 years ago with you know I saw everybody then but now I have a highly concentrated population of parents who are really into this and who really are seeking out that you know, just as much information as they can get and so sometimes again I lean more toward that toward the parents who are ultra committed and who are working with their kids all day every day because you know again I've been so 
blessed to get to work with parents like that. So you may have parents on the other side of this where you're really begging them to take this seriously. And I've been there too. But you use the same kinds of things to explain and to talk about as we've included on today's show. Okay, one more drink here. All right, so before we talk about these diagnoses, remember the younger the child is and the less he says, the trickier it is to figure out a diagnosis. So for parents who are, you know, just coming to see you with an 18-month-old and saying, I can't understand anything he says, what is wrong here? It's going to be a lot harder to figure it out. And I do get emails from parents who will say, I have a 14-month-old or a 15-month-old, you know, and I... I just I I love those parents and I so get it why they're so concerned but at the same time you don't worry about that yet <laughs> because maturation will take care of some of that even if there is something else going on with that you know 14 or 15 months is really really young and so remember if you're a parent if you have a kid who's under three it may be impossible to get a firm diagnosis for what's going on speech-wise because the therapist just doesn't have enough information yet. A big thing that you have to have in order to make an accurate diagnosis for what's going on with speech intelligibility is an adequate vocabulary size. So kids have to be talking a lot before we can really start to identify patterns. And so by a lot, I mean that they're using phrases. And that was one of the one of the factors that we talked about way back in show uh, 373, 374, is working on speech intelligibility even worth it for a kid? Is it appropriate? And one of the things we said is that language has to be moving along. And so experts will tell you unless a child has 25 to 35 established single words, you know, you can't find a pattern yet. You, you just, you're taking a shot in the dark if you're guessing at what you think the reason is or the diagnosis is. And so for me, I really don't think about a diagnosis for a kid, a firm diagnosis, unless he has that many words. Now, there will be some children where you say, I know this is apraxia <laughs> because his vowel sounds are undifferentiated. He, you know, it, it, you, he can't sequence most of his words, you know, and you go through that whole list, which we're just going to go ahead and talk about. But there will be kids that will have a smaller vocabulary that you just know because of your level of experience and because they meet all the criteria. But for the most part, you really want to hold off on giving a firm diagnosis, especially when a parent isn't asking about it until a child has, is talking in phrases or there's enough evidence to really support uh, your clinical impression there. So. I'm not going to be able to read through all of these, but there's just a really nice discussion in Chapter 7 in Functional Phonology where we compare speech delay, phonological disorder, dysarthria, and apraxia, and really, really look at that. And I want to run through some of these things, too, and some of these differences. When we're looking at speech delay, remember that it simply means that there's a slower rate of development. Everything is coming in as expected, but there's some characteristics that uh, let us know, again, that the child, uh, that this is the diagnosis that fits more than anything else. And so what are some things that are uh, characteristic of children who will just get a speech delay diagnosis. They have difficulty acquiring a variety of consonant sounds as quickly as affected. So remember, it's their rate. They're just slower. 
However, their errors are very consistent from word to word and across context. So if they say a word wrong at school, they're going to say a word, or daycare, they're going to say those have the same error at home. So their errors are consistent. The big thing is they do not talk like other same age peers. So they sound more, they sound younger, they sound more babyish. They do struggle with intelligibility when you get a speech delay, but not to the degree uh, as noted in the other diagnoses that we're going to talk about. And their issues are milder and resolved more quickly, and that would be both with and without therapy. So how do you know if a kid just has a speech delay? Well, they have normal skills in other areas. Their communicative intent is normal. They try to talk to you, even if they sound like a younger child. They use gestures, like I've been doing this whole show. <laughs> they point, they wave, they shake their heads for yes and no. They, they um, <coughs> usually do not have difficulty with vowels with syllableness or using a variety of syllable structures. So again, their issues are more likely to be limited to consonants. They have normal prosody or the melody or rhythm of their speech. They have normal voice quality, so no, no hoarseness or harshness or hypernasality like we see with dysarthria. And they have normal feeding skills usually. They eat a variety of uh, foods with no problems chewing or swallowing. They have normal language skills, too. If this is just a speech delay, remember language as we're talking about vocabulary. And so they have normal social interaction. They understand language as well as kids their own age. They have normal play skills. So those are the things that we're looking at, too. And the other thing with speech delay is they do improve and catch up over time. And again, they make, if you get these kinds of kids with, that have just a speech delay, Sometimes they're your stars in therapy because if you, especially if you're a preschool therapist and mom may not have really had any indication that any, that, that she should even be looking at therapy because everything else was normal. They follow commands, they play, uh, again, they don't have difficulty with interaction and engagement. And so these kids typically do super, super well in therapy. They get in there, you give them a jump start, and they move ahead. So that's speech delay. Let's look at phonological disorder. Now, before we talk about phonological disorders, let's talk about phonological processes. These are the patterns or the errors that all kids make as they're learning how to talk, so they're pretty common. And it's what, a, it's what little kids use to simplify adult speech. And so as kids mature and get older, these processes disappear. So again, that's what we normally refer to as maturation. And so... Let's talk about, uh, and so as speech-language pathologists, we can group the errors that these kinds of kids, that, that the kinds of errors that these kids make into patterns. So we can see, oh, like we talked about here, they always leave off the beginning consonant or nearly always. Or they, there's a real level of consistency in that they don't include a consonant at the end of the word. And so... Again, because it's a pattern there, let me say it's easier to work on patterns and to target speech intelligibility like this because you're not just doing that, let's fix one sound in one position at a time. And so let's talk about some characteristics uh, for kids with phonological disorders. First of all, they can really struggle with speech intelligibility and the, the severity can really range. You can have a kid with mild phonological issues versus a kid with severe or significant phonological issues. And so the level of severity really will predict their rate of improvement. Kids who are more severe, more significant are, are 
going to need more therapy and it's going to take more time. And when it's a true phonological disorder, those kids have to be in therapy or otherwise they'll, they'll just continue to struggle with communicating and we certainly don't want that. So kids with phonological disorders, we've talked about the problems. Let's talk about what they, they usually don't have trouble with. They usually do not have difficulty with vowels. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they use a variety of vowel sounds. They usually don't have difficulty with prosody or the melody or rhythm of speech. They usually have normal voice quality, so no hypernasality, hoarseness, or harshness. Their feeding skills are fine. There's no muscle tone weakness uh, noted, and they're fine with communicative intent, with social interaction, with their, their receptive language, with their play skills. They used gestures, and they did babble. It's just when they started to acquire words, they had some uh, more difficulty with making themselves understood. So that's phonological disorder. And again, I think about it as the sound part of a linguistic issue. And that's sort of hard to explain without a specific child to give some really specific examples. But that's how I think about it with a parent. And that's how, or talk about it with a parent. And that's how I think about it for these kids. And sometimes kids who've had language disorders when they really start to talk and you look at it and you think now this is primarily a speech issue, you know, it's it's a phonological disorder is, is what you, you might really, really end up with. All right, so let's move on. And, and again, that's a simplified uh, version of that. It's a real, real basic explanation of that. And that's the explanation that we share with parents. And so as a therapist, you know, this whole, this my whole podcast is geared toward you, not necessarily helping you understand more clinically I mean it is but the biggest part that I want to be able to share with you is how to explain this to parents and so how to make yourself more efficient more productive when you work with the family so that they understand what you're talking about so it's the it's taking this very technical very specialized information that we have as SLPs and making it accessible and more user-friendly for families and for team members you might have to really explain this to OTs and PTs and teachers who are on your teams too so this is the way to do it the next diagnosis that we're going to talk about is dysarthria and so dysarthria is a neurological motor speech disorder so it's really it's it's the problem with brain how a child's brain has either been injured or assaulted or um, development there and so kids with medical diagnoses have dysarthria so down syndrome cerebral palsy stroke traumatic brain injury or any other kind of brain abnormality dysarthria is the uh, it results in muscle tone differences and those muscle tone differences are throughout a body throughout a child's body not just legs if they have difficulty learning how to walk not just arms if they have difficulty learning how to do self-help skills or play or fine motor so you have to talk to your parent about that and you have to say if his legs are affected and if his arms have been affected his trunk will be affected too you know remember how he had a hard time learning how to roll over and sit up and really support himself and have good balance well speech starts in your lungs there and it's with your core strength and having enough muscles to push that air up over into your throat over your vocal cords or over your vocal folds so that they can vibrate and make sound and then they still have to direct that air then through their articulation system so through their little throats and through their mouths and through their noses and that's how you explain that to parents and you say if their muscle tone has been so significantly affected that they walk 
late and that they have difficulty even once they're walking some qualitative differences here they struggle with balance or they struggle with endurance or you know whatever they struggle with there are going to be some problems with speech intelligibility too because it's the same body and it's the same problem that's affected them throughout so that's how you explain that so we'll see more significant differences uh, again the more severe the problem has been throughout a child's body so what are some characteristics of children with dysarthria they struggle with really executing those muscle movements for speech so their speech is really difficult to understand due to that muscle weakness or muscle tightness and again we go back to the hypotonia which is weakness or hypertonia which is rigidity or tightness and again noted throughout their bodies and let me just say, a lot of times we'll have a kid with Down syndrome who's got low muscle tone, and we call that apraxia to a parent, and that is wrong. And a kid, can, well, it could be wrong. You're probably wrong. Now, a kid could also have some motor planning issues. I'm not saying that, but we have to really look for what, let, let's borrow a term from ABA, parsimony. What does that mean? It means we go for the simplest explanation first and so we would say because of this muscle tone difference we're going to and because we can see this difference and because we know this difference we're going to call this dysarthria we're not going to call it anything else and dysarthria has really it's it's not as prominent in our it just even in professionals everyday language we don't really talk about dysarthria in early intervention like we talk about apraxia and so I, I hope we can change that and <laughs> we can really start to use that diagnosis and talk about that because a lot of us remember that from grad school, but we don't even really think about it that often. And so, you know, unless we really work in, you know, a clinic that really focuses on that or, you know, lots of our kids have these global issues, they might not think about dysarthria as often as we should. And so because of those problems throughout their bodies and because of that difficulty executing muscle movements, it causes that entire system to be disrupted. So they sound different. We talked about their words might be slurred or slushy, mumbled, sluggish, imprecise, or weak. However, their errors are very consistent from word to word because their bodies are the same. They're using the same same system. Now, uh, again, you there are some other things. They may drool excessively past age two because of that decreased motor control. They have difficulty imitating actions, gestures, and other sounds. Why? Because they have difficulty with movement throughout their bodies. They can distort both vowels and consonant sounds. So you'll hear a lot of the distortions that we talked about earlier. It's not really, they're, they're doing omissions and deletions and they're doing some substitutions, but a lot of times it just sounds a little bit off. And that, that's how we would think about a distortion. They also can have abnormal voice qualities that we've already talked about. So hypernasality, hoarseness, harshness, because again, their, their bodies, their muscle tone is affected throughout their little bodies. They'll have volume, pitch, and prosody issues as well. Feeding problems we often see in kids who have dysarthria. And so uh, they may also have some accompanying cognitive or mental issues or mental development issues which again would affect receptive language or how they're learning to understand and use words too and so kids with dysarthria absolutely have to have speech therapy to make improvements and until you get their bodies their muscle weakness or the 
um, the hypertonia, the tightness, until you get that more normalized, you're not going to make as much progress in speech therapy. So PT and OT, super, super important components for these kinds of kids to make progress in speech therapy. All right, let's talk about apraxia. Apraxia is a neurological motor speech disorder, and it occurs in the absence of problems with muscle tone development. And so these kids don't necessarily, or these kids don't have difficulty with executing their mouth movements, but it's planning their speech movements and difficulty connecting those speech messages. How I explain this to parents is here, they know what they want to say, they just can't get it here. There's a misfire. And again, that's a very layman's explanation of that, but parents get it and I think it's a good way to explain it without being quite as technical. Apraxia is commonly referred to as childhood apraxia of speech. And it is controversial to diagnose with a child, a child who is under three with apraxia. Although those of us who've done early intervention forever, we lean toward going ahead and giving parents that heads up about that diagnosis so that they can uh, start to understand what's going on with that. So let's talk about some characteristics noted in children with childhood apraxia of speech inconsistency with intelligibility and that's how I know that I know that I know that I know when a kid has apraxia because he may say the same word in a session with me four or five different ways and a lot of kids will do that they're uh, but they're just again the inconsistency is consistent and that's how you'll know let me back up a lot of kids don't do it that that way but you may hear as a child is learning even without apraxia as he's learning a new sound he may have some difficulty getting it that way but in spontaneous speech his errors are usually consistent kids with apraxia inconsistency is their only consistency so I want to make sure that you uh, are understanding what I'm trying to say there they also have inconsistent communication in uh, various settings the more comfortable they are uh, the better their intelligibility will be if there's communicative pressure oh my goodness a lot less successful so that's why sometimes therapy can be a disaster unless the therapist does everything they can to make it fun and exciting especially when a kid is a toddler now as a child ages therapy gets a little more like work but in early intervention we totally want to keep as much pressure off as we can another big difficulty with apraxia is they have a lot of uh, difficulty sequencing sounds into syllables and words so you don't hear as much jargon and babbling in children or in babies who will go on to be diagnosed with apraxia because they don't have as much vocal play they can't do it and so talk to parents about that so when parents say he has been such a quiet baby he hardly made a peep ding 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 that that alarm should be going off in your head thinking hmm could this be apraxia let, let me think about that another big diagnostic feature of children who go on to be diagnosed with apraxia is oral groping and that's where they do some interesting things with their mouth they'll try to say a word and you'll see a little tongue pop out or you'll see a big you know an exaggerated or they may try to talk with their mouths closed so lots of differences here in their little mouths and you'll start to just look at it and go what was that and that all almost always will be uh, an indicator to you that you should look more closely now let me say to kids with dysarthria or back with that diagnosis their muscle weakness may cause some of that too but oral groping with apraxia really looks like 
They understand everything. They follow, they demonstrate that they understand. They follow commands and they are, they are fine communicators at home. And then you get them outside of that. That's selective mutism, that they have normal communicative development at home or in that really comfortable setting. It's just when you get them beyond that. Uh, but kids with autism struggle with social interaction everywhere. They may be better with mom at home, but you bring in somebody that they don't see as often and they're avoiding, they're escaping, they're, they're blowing you off. And so it's that social piece that's really, really missing. Another thing that kids with autism have a, a lot of difficulty with is gestures. And so they really don't wave bye-bye or point or show you things, the joint attention piece. So that's what we use to talk to parents about. And we say to parents, you know, what you're describing isn't really a speech problem. And yes, he has some difficulty learning to get, say, consonant sounds, but his issues are more social related. And that, that's autism. This is the autism piece. And I talk to parents about that all the time, especially when a kid has apraxia with autism and there are more things going on and we're treating more than one issue. You know, and I'll just tell you, speech intelligibility to me, and I hope to you, falls way down the list of priorities. We've got to get that social communication piece first because kids need to, you know, they, it always takes two people to communicate. And so you've got to have that back and forth piece and you've got to be able to listen to other people. And then that next little, that next little area of development, cognition and receptive language and pay attention to other people. You've got to have those things in, in place and then begin to use some gestures or some words and phrases to communicate. And then and only then do we worry about speech intelligibility. So I hope that puts all of this in line for you and helps you be able to think about it as a parent or explain it as a therapist. And let's end with this. How do we know when a kid really, really needs another method of communication. How do we know when intelligible speech is not a realistic goal? And I learned this on a, uh, I learned this from, oh, I've forgotten her name now, but she's awesome. Practicalaac.org. Oh, I'm so sorry if you're watching this and my little 53 year old brain is not recalling your name because you taught me so much, but there are three factors that tell us when we should pursue an additional or an alternative way of communicating. When there's a significant gap that exists between what a child understands and what he wants to express. So when there's a gap there, you see that frustration. When there's, you see, man, this kid has so much to say, but he has no way to do it. When it's, and, and when there's, when he's frustrated there, that's the second one. And thirdly, when there is a diagnosis present that strongly indicates that this child will struggle with intelligibility for a long time. So this is a chronic issue. So anything that has you know, severe phonological disorder, severe apraxia, significant, or if there's a medical diagnosis like Down syndrome and you, and, or cerebral palsy, and you, let me just say, a lot of times, Parents think that when you want to give a kid an AAC device that you're giving up on speech, and that's absolutely not true. What you're doing is you are taking the pressure off <laughs> so that a child is more likely to learn how to talk. He's more likely to learn how to communicate because you've given him a, a tool. You've given him a way to do it when his own little body will not cooperate. And so there's a nice um, explanation of that, a shorter 
a short one that you can use and you can adapt to your own. And again, it's in functional phonology. And let me just say, these ideas, these aren't things that I created and that I'm just out here, you know, in my own little island. These are all evidence-based practice strategies and resources that we've I've pulled over the years from uh, other therapists and authors who have done uh, such a good job. Hey guys, Carol Zangori is the speech language pathologist that uh, is practicalaac.org and I'm so glad that uh, my executive producer Johnny Mize went and uh, wrote that on a sticky note for me so that I can say that and he's he saved me again and so uh, I want to give her credit for that but check out her website because super super information about implementing AAC devices with toddlers and preschoolers and I'm, I'm so glad too that I was able to share that reference with you and again all of this is evidence-based practice these are things that you know we pull from phonological giants like Hodson and Padden and from apraxia experts like Nancy Kaufman and uh, David Hammer and that just have uh, helped me as a professional and oh gosh Pamela Marshalla just all these experts and you put all this together and you end up with what I think is a pretty well, what I think is a really great way, because it's more like a hybrid approach, a language-based approach to working on treating speech intelligibility in toddlers. So I hope that you've learned some things from uh, this series of shows. Every time I present this information, you know, it reminds me, you know, I think, oh gosh, I wrote that. I, why didn't I do that yesterday with a kid? Why, why didn't I remember that? And so I, that's, that's what makes all of us get better. It's just reminding us of what we know, what we already know, but then helping us really implement that so it's a part of our everyday practices. And if you're a parent, this may be the first time you've been exposed to this information. And I hope more than anything is help you understand your own sweet baby more and more and his own struggles and your struggles as his or her uh, mom or dad to help him learn how to communicate. And that's just how I want to end this series with really applauding you as parents or therapists for getting out there and trying to get yourself some better information so that you can make yourself better and better and better. All right, that's all for this show and for this series. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talks podcast.